Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're looking at verses 9 through 17, and because we've had a break of two weeks, I'm going to do some review with you, and then we'll move on and hopefully finish the passage today. Uh, in this text, we saw, we've said that there's, you find the, the most dramatic, insightful, comprehensive statement that our Lord ever made, one of them, probably the, perhaps the most definitive, it gives the divine perspective on his ministry. And that's at the end of verse 13 where he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, God has come for bad people, not good people. Now, that's the message of Christianity, the essence of the gospel, the reason for the incarnation. Paul summed it up when he said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. Uh, but there are many people who believe they are righteous, and as a consequence, he can't help them because in their minds they have no need. You see, that's why when we present the gospel, there's a sense it has to be negative because people don't come to Christ for a solution unless they understand they have a problem. Uh, they don't come for healing unless they know they have a disease. And they don't come for eternal life unless they know that they're dead. Uh, so, as you remember the context, as we look at this passage, Matthew's presenting the Messiahship of Jesus. He's trying to prove it every way possible. And in, in chapters 8 and 9, he describes some of the miracles Jesus did. Nine miracles, three sets of three. The first three deal with disease and sickness. Uh, the second three dealt with Christ's power over the elements of nature, uh, his power over demons, his power over sin. And that's where we are. Jesus has just forgiven a man's sin, totally, comprehensively, completely. Uh, Matthew makes that clear in verses 1 to 8, that Jesus has the ability and the power to forgive sin. So the question comes, how much sin can he forgive? Whose sin can he forgive? What sin, whose sin does he not forgive? And uh, what's the required response? What's necessary to experience this forgiveness? And we saw in verses 9 and 10, Matthew's positive response. So let's read those verses. It says, as Jesus went out from there, saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus sees Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he says to him, follow him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And the question that Matthew's readers' minds would be, well, how far does Jesus' forgiveness of sin go? They've just seen Jesus forgive this paralytic sin, healed him, so how far does this go? What kind of people is Jesus willing to forgive? And Matthew says, in effect, he forgave me. Now, we saw that's rather significant because Matthew was considered to be the vilest person in Capernaum. Uh, he was the most wretched sinner there, most despised, corrupt man in Capernaum. And so how far does Jesus' forgiveness go? It goes all the way to the most extreme case. And that's why Matthew uses himself as an illustration. He was the tax collector for the area. He was a publicani, a man who served the occupying Roman Empire to collect taxes from his own people. And uh, so he had uh, bought a franchise, a tax franchise from the Roman government. He was collecting taxes, and tax collectors were considered traitors. They were very wealthy because they had the power to overassess the value of goods that they taxed. And because they were wealthy collaborators and had regular contact with Gentiles, they were considered to be pariahs in Israel. And they were banned from temples, the temple and synagogues. And not only were they banned from those places, but they were not allowed to have any religious or social contact with other Jews. Uh, they were considered, they were included in a list of unclean animals from the Old Testament. They were thought to be on the same level as a pig in the Jewish mind. Uh, they were forbidden to be a witness in any court of law because they 
were considered to be flagrant liars who could not be believed. And, uh, and then we saw that they had a few categories of these guys. There were the Gabai who collected the basic regular taxes like property taxes and things like that, your, uh, your poll tax and all that. Uh, but then there was the kind that dealt with the duty taxes uh, on various goods that were shipped. And those duty taxes were collected by a tax collector called a Mokesh. And he was able to collect taxes on all import, export, everything bought, sold, tra that traveled over every road, harbor, every town, everywhere, everything. And uh, they hated the goodbye, but they despised the Mokesh. Uh, they were unlimited. They were oppressive. And here was Matthew, who was a Mokesh, sitting in his tax collector's booth on the north port of the Sea of Galilee, collecting taxes from everything that's taking place on the lake, all the fishing business and goods that traveled across the lake. And uh, plus, he's at the convergence of the roads were from Damascus in the east, Caesarea to the west, Jerusalem to the south. And so he collects a ton of money. So he's a very despised man. And uh, he was uh, the little Mokesh. Remember, we had the great Mokesh and the little Mokesh. The great Mokesh is the guy that he wanted to save a little bit of his reputation, so he he uh, hired somebody to sit in the tax booth. And he sort of stayed behind the scenes, sort of protect his own reputation. But the little Mokesh was the guy who was sitting in the booth, and that was Matthew. Uh, he's there, and Jesus comes along, and he says, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. And I'm sure the crowd was absolutely stunned. Uh, you know, Matthew was obviously a man under conviction. He had heard about Jesus. He knew what he that when he looked at Jesus, he looked at his own life, and he was a worthless sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. But the system of Judaism told him that he could never have it. The uh, rabbis said that a Mokesh could never be forgiven. That was repentance was impossible. And so Matthew recognized his sin. And so when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me, Matthew jumped up and followed. And, Matt, and Luke adds the fact that he left everything behind. So the price that Matthew paid was far greater than many of the other disciples. He, he left everything. He was probably the wealthiest, wealthiest of all the 12 disciples before Jesus called him. And in an instant, he became impoverished for the sake of obeying Christ because he, long, he longed for forgiveness and he longed for what Jesus offered. And so he was willing to leave it all and go. And uh, uh, that's how far God's forgiveness goes. It goes to the worst possible sinner. Well, Matthew was so overwhelmed that he decided to throw a banquet. And it's, it's a banquet unlike any of the other banquets that Jesus went to. It was filled with all of the most corrupt sinners in the area. The prostitutes, the other tax collectors from the surrounding districts, they're the only kind of people that would accept an invitation to Matthew's house. And so he holds this banquet. Jesus is the honored guest. He brings along his disciples, who I'm sure some of them were a little concerned about that, but if their rabbi told them that they were to go and they believed he was the Messiah, so they did what he told them to do. And right then it included dining with tax collectors and sinners. <clears throat> and so that was Matthew's positive response to Jesus. And then we see the negative response in verse 11. Since when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Obviously, the Pharisees had heard about this banquet going on. They go over to Matthew's house. They wait outside. They never would have dared go inside because there was all this corrupt riffraff inside and they didn't want anything to do with them. So they wait till they come out and, and they're there to confront him. And, and when they come out, they don't even confront Jesus directly. They talk to his disciples and uh, they say, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And it's really not just a question. It's a rebuke. It's kind of like saying, shame on you guys for fraternizing with a teacher who hangs around with such trashy people. 
Um, and their motive is not to learn the truth, but to accuse and entrap and convict this presumptuous upstart who is turning their religious system upside down. And so they're saying, because in their minds, truly religious people, pious people, righteous people like them shun such vile sinners. And uh, the Pharisees say, what kind of leader have you got who hangs around with the scum? And that's where we stopped last week. And so let's pick it up in verse 12 with Jesus' answer. 12 and, verses 12 and 13. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus heard the Pharisees' accusatory questions, he defended his disciples by answering it for them. And he has a threefold argument. It's very powerful. The first argument is from human logic. The second is from Scripture. And the third is from his own divine authority. So let's begin with his argument from human logic. He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now this statement was a proverb which uses physical illness as a metaphor for spiritual need. Uh, Plutarch quotes a very similar saying of the Spartan king Pausanias when he was criticized for neglecting his own people. And he said, it's not the custom of doctors to spend time among people who are healthy, but where people are ill. And the philosopher Diogenes is quoted as saying, as a doctor must go among the sick, so a wise man must mix with fools. Uh, so uh, what Jesus is doing is indicting the Pharisees. He's saying, if you are as spiritually and morally perfect as you claim to be, you don't need any help from God or other men. If you're indeed spiritually healthy, you don't need a spiritual physician. On the other hand, these tax collectors, these sinners who you declare and they themselves admit are spiritually sick, when they need God's way of salvation, they, they need it and they want to hear it. They're the ones who seek the spiritual physician. And that's why I'm ministering to them. His defense is very simple. He's going to the people who had the deepest need. It's as though he's saying, if you're so perceptive as to see these people as sinners, and if your diagnosis is accurate, then where's your passion? Where is your concern? Are you a doctor who diagnoses but has no desire to cure? Uh, what an indictment of their self-righteousness. Uh, it's an indictment of their judgmental spirit that he was, spoke about back in chapter 7. It's an indictment of their con condemning attitude. They so freely have defined them, the, all these people as sinners, and they're utter, utterly indifferent to them. In Matthew 23, the Lord says to them, you make sure that you carry out the ritual of tithing, dent and mill and cumin, which are all very tiny spice seeds, but you've omitted the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy. Where's your mercy? Where's your compassion? Where's your love? Where's your care? You made the diagnosis, but you condemned yourself because you stopped right there. But Jesus says, I didn't come to invite people who are so self-satisfied that they're convinced of their own goodness, that they're convinced they don't need anyone's help. Rather, I came to invite people who are desperate and conscious of their sin and their need for a savior. The scribes and Pharisees were lousy spiritual doctors. They were more concerned with the preservation of their own holiness than with helping anyone else. They're, they're kind of like a doctor who would say, oh, I'd love to come over and cure you, but I might get your sickness. Um, or one who says, well, I certainly will give you a diagnosis, but I don't have time to bother with a cure. Uh, but Jesus comes along and expresses the fullness of the statement found in Exodus 15, 26, where God said, I, the Lord, am your healer. Uh, Jesus came right down and got in the room and ate with them. He got as close to them as you can get. And rather than being contaminated by them, he made them pure and white as snow. He was the divine physician. The argument from analogy is potent here. If they're sick, they need a doctor. And what an indictment it was. He says, you don't think you're sick. You're the sickest of all. 
The second is an argument from Scripture. It's found in verse 13. And here he pins them to the wall with their own Scripture. He says, but go and learn what this means. Now that statement is from their very own rabbinical writings. They say it over and over again. The rabbis use as an exhortation or a rebuke to people who didn't really know what they should have known. So he says, go back to the text and learn what your own scriptures mean when they say, and then he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. <clears throat> In other words, God says, I'm not concerned with ritual. I'm concerned with a merciful heart. It's almost like a slap in their face. They focused on all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the tithes, right down to the tiniest of details, but they had no mercy or compassion or love for sinners. And so God said to them in Hosea 6, 6, it's not sacrifice that I want from you, it's mercy and compassion. In other words, it's your hearts I'm after. It's the same thing in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is indicting the Pharisees, saying you'll never get the mercy of God because you show no mercy, which proves your hearts aren't right. He shows this bunch of self-deluded religionists that they are far worse than tax collectors and sinners. And so he says, go and learn what your own text says. I'm far more concerned with mercy and compassion for sinners than I am with your ritualistic sacrifices. Now listen, God was the one who instituted the sacrificial system. God had ordered Israel to offer these sacrifices. But they were only, ple they're only pleasing to God when they were an expression of a broken and contrite heart. And when the heart wasn't right, the ritual was an abomination to God. And so he's saying to them here, I want mercy. You say you're righteous because you do the ritual. I say you're vile because you show no mercy, and that's the true indication of your heart. You don't have the heart of God. You see, God is never pleased with rituals separated from personal righteousness. We have the same problem in the evangelical Christian culture today. There are many people who think that if they just go through a, a certain Christian routine, uh, that is, they go to church, they give some money, they don't cheat on their spouse or their taxes, that, that means God is pleased with them. But God is never pleased with a routine that is separated from personal holiness and a sincere love for him and others. Without a change of heart, without a deep sense of sin, sacrifices were dead ritual. They were loathsome and hateful to God. Listen to what the prophet Amos says to Amos. Uh, said, uh, he says in Amos 5, 21 to 24, <clears throat> I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What scripture was that? That's Amos 5, 21 to 24. In other words, God says, I ordained all those things, but I hate them because your hearts aren't right. I want justice and righteousness. So Jesus has argued first from human logic, and second, from the Old Testament scriptures. And lastly, he argues from his own authority. He says at the end of verse 13, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Luke's account, he records that Jesus added the words to repentance at, to the end of the statement. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's the person who's sinful and who acknowledges his sin and turns from his sin who is repentant. And he is the subject of Jesus' call. Now, it's almost like Jesus is burying the knife in those Pharisees with these words. Why? Because they thought they were righteous. In fact, in Luke 18, 9, 
when he was about to tell them the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, he says he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. See, they thought of themselves as righteous. So Jesus accepts their self-evaluation and says, so you say you're righteous. I accept your self-evaluation and thus I have nothing to say to you. I have come to call sinners. By the way, the word translated call is often used of inviting a guest to one's home for food and lodging. And the inference is clear. Jesus did not come to call the self-righteous to salvation for the same reason he didn't call the Pharisees to dine with him at the dinner in Matthew's house. They were too good in their own eyes to condescend to such humiliation. And because they would not identify themselves with sinners, they could not be identified with Christ who offer salvation only to sinners who willingly acknowledge that they are sinners. In Luke 14, Jesus told a parable that fits with this so well. He pictured the kingdom of heaven like a banquet to which the king sent out invitations. But all the people who were invited refused to come. And that's the picture of Israel. The kingdom was offered to them, but they refused it. And then the king tells his slaves, you go out into the highways and byways and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You see, the kingdom is for the hungry, the thirsty. They'll be satisfied. The kingdom is for the hurting, the mourning, the meek, the sinful. That, that's what he's saying here. He says, I called you, but your pious, cold-hearted self-righteousness causes you to refuse my invitation. So instead, I'm inviting those who know they need me. That's the theme of the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners. And until someone knows that he or she is a sinner, the Lord has nothing to offer to them. Matthew knew he was a wretched sinner, so when Jesus said, follow me, he left everything, got up, and followed Jesus. And the rest is a glorious history, isn't it? Matthew became the apostle who penned this wonderful gospel that we're studying, and he entered into a spiritual inheritance that goes on forever. Jesus receives sinners. Matthew was the little Mokesh of Capernaum, and that young man I told you about last week that I arrested all those years ago who was considered the dregs of human society, those are the kind of people that Jesus came to save. And that's the message of this passage, that Jesus saves sinners. Well, finally, we come to the last portion of this passage in which Jesus gives illustrations of how his way of righteousness and salvation is not like that of the accepted religious standard of his day. After all, he associated with the riffraff, the sinners, the lowest of society, and at the same time, he didn't conform to all the traditions like uh, the ritualistic fasting at various times. So some people wanted to know why he was willing to feast with the tax collectors, but he didn't fast with the Pharisees, and that brings us to verses 14 to 17. Since then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a Worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Now, we don't know for certain if this conversation happened in actual sequence, but it certainly happens in logical sequence and may well have been at the very same occasion as the prior conversation. And I say that because it appears immediately after the previous conversation in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, verse 14 begins with, Then the disciples of John came to him. Now these were disciples of John the Baptist. And you'll recall that when John came on the scene, many people followed him. And at a point in his life, he tried to transfer his followers over to Jesus. He, he told them in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
In other words, you've got to leave me and go follow the Messiah now. He's here. But it's apparent that not all of them did. In fact, even in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts 19, uh, we still see some of the disciples of John the Baptist running around who didn't even know about Jesus. Uh, so apparently these guys are somehow connected to John. Uh, back in chapter 4, verse 12, we saw that John was taken into custody, so he's in prison now. And so his followers, who are very devout, who have not yet begun to follow Jesus, are still connected very tightly to the traditional Jewish ceremonies and practices. And so unlike the Pharisees who approached Jesus' disciples, these guys went directly to Jesus. And they asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, unlike the Pharisees, their question was sincere. The, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus with words. These guys are looking for what, at what they've always been taught, what they've always observed, and they're wondering, why are you and your followers different from us? Why don't you practice the same traditions that we practice? And that indicates that even though they followed John the Baptist and were close to getting to the truth, they were still stuck with their old Judaistic system. You see, the Old Testament had only one mandatory feast, and that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the rabbinic traditions taught that you had to fast twice a week. And that's what the Pharisees practiced. And because it was taught that all good righteous Jews did that, these followers of John the Baptist were doing the same. So there was all this ritual and routine. And so they, they asked Jesus, why do we fast and you don't fast? In other words, what they're really saying is, how come your religious practice is so different than ours? Now, as we saw back when we studied the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, the three major expressions of the Jewish traditions at that time were what? They were fasting, almsgiving, and prayers. And they had their daily routine of praying at various intervals and specific times. And they would stop wherever they were, whether on the street corner or the synagogue, and recite their prayers. And then when they gave alms to the poor, they made a big production about it so that others saw how righteous they were by giving to the poor. And whenever they fasted, they would neglect their appearance and make themselves look like they were hungry and starving so that others would know that they were fasting. So those external outward rituals were the substance of their religion. And what they're really saying is, how come you don't do what we do? How come your approach is so different? That's really an important question. You see, they didn't see religion as a matter of humility, sinfulness, repentance, and forgiveness, but as a matter of ceremony, as a matter of ritual. And there are many just like that today. I think, for example, in a Roman Catholic church, there are many people who go for the ritualistic routines. Uh, you kneel, you recite the rosary, you take the Eucharist, you light candles for deceased relatives in purgatory, you pray to saints, and occasionally you go to confession. And that's all it is to them, ritual and ceremony. You can't carry on a conversation with them about repentance and forgiveness and true conversion because they don't even know what you're speaking about. Uh, it's the routine of bowing down to a saint or lighting a candle or going through a ritual. I once worked with a man who was part of an Episcopalian church, which is only a few shades different than Roman Catholicism. Uh, their priests can get married, but otherwise their doctrine of salvation is based on works righteousness, just like the Roman Catholic Church. And he once asked me what our church services were like. So I described a typical service to him, and his response was, no, that's not for me. Unless I smell incense and hear bells tinkling, that's, it isn't a real religious service. His view of religion was nothing more than ceremony. Um, and we have them in Protestantism too. The people who pray a little prayer at the dinner table, they own a Bible and now and again they open it. 
They go to church services occasionally. They mumble through the words of the songs and they go through the forms, the routines, the externals, and they don't even understand the internal aspect of true worship. They don't know what it means to be convicted of sin, to have a deep repentance in the heart. When, when a form of, of praying, worshiping, or serving becomes the focus of attention, folks, it becomes a barrier to true righteousness. It can even keep an unbeliever from trusting in God and a believer from faithfully obeying him. So that's essentially what these guys are asking Jesus. How come your religious practices are so different? You don't do what we do. Look at the Lord's answer, verse 15. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Now in those days, a wedding would last seven days. And the man getting married would choose his best friends, and they were responsible to keep the party alive. That was their job. Promote the festivities, carry out the celebration, generate the fun, make sure everything goes well. And Jesus says, look, this is a wedding. This is a celebration. This is a happy time. You don't expect the groom's attendants to mourn during the wedding feast, do you? In other words, your ritual is out of sync with spiritual reality. You see what he's saying? He's saying... You guys are stuck on your routines regardless of what God is doing in your midst. There's no connection between spiritual reality and your ritual. That's a very important thing to note. You can almost imagine this conversation between them and Jesus. They say, we fast twice a week. He says, are you sad twice a week? They say, no, we just fast twice a week. He says, well, don't you know fasting is connected with mourning? And they go, oh, it is? He says, don't you know that fasting is connected with praying? They say, it is? No, we just fast twice a week. Bring it up to our day. Imagine this conversation. We say, we go to church every Sunday. He says, oh, you do? Oh, yes, we've gone to church every Sunday for years. Why? Because you always, we always go to church. We've always gone to church. He said, do you go there to worship God? Huh? So why do you go? What's the reason? What's your attitude? You see... Fasting is always meaningless if it's performed from habit and does not come from deep concern and mourning over some spiritual need. And to go to church on Sunday is hypocritical if it's done apart from a genuine desire to worship and glorify God. Singing hymns and praise songs is only a pretense of worship if it doesn't come from a heart that seeks to praise the Lord. Jesus is saying, you have a system that is utterly external that functions with no connection to spiritual reality the bridegroom is here i'm the bridegroom and i'm here with them this is a time for celebration now look at the end of verse 15 he says but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast he's saying one of these days i'm going to be taken away from them and he's speaking of his crucifixion here and they will mourn and be sad, and then they will fast. Listen, if you go through any religious exercise apart from an honest attitude of worship in the heart, folks, it's just ritual and nothing else. If you fast just to fast, pray just to pray, go to church just to go to church, read the Bible just to read the Bible, sing a song just to sing a song, you missed it. Jesus says, look, we have an internal, vital, real relationship with the living God. So what we do is a result of what's happening in that relationship. And right now, the bridegroom is here and the wedding feast is going on. You don't cry at a wedding. You cry at a funeral. You're happy at a wedding. I'm here with them. This is not a time for mourning. Those days will come and then it'll be appropriate to fast. Fasting will come very normally and naturally when you have a broken heart in prayer seeking God. But to use anything as a means, some ritual to gain the favor of God, is to miss the point. So he shows the difference between what he taught and their entire system. They just ran through the motions without any meaning. But he says, we don't fast unless there's something to fast about. And we're happy when there's something to be happy about. So he disallows all of the supposed benefit of their twice a week fast. 
But they had a bigger question in their minds, and Jesus answers, answers it in the next two verses. You see, the follow-up question that had to be in their minds was, at that point, was, in light of your celebrating and not abiding by the rabbinical traditions of fasting, then how do we relate to you? What are you trying to say to us? How does our present religious system relate to what you're teaching? And in effect, the Lord says, it doesn't relate at all. There's no connection at all. And he gives them two illustrations in verses 16 and 17 that are so powerful. Jesus is not teaching Reformed Pharisaism. He is not teaching a Reformed Rabbinicalism. He's saying, look, I'm not here to polish up your system and tweak a few things. What I'm saying is so diametrically opposed to everything you're doing, there is no connection. Now, some people have taken this passage and made it mean that he's setting aside the law and bringing in grace. Nothing could be further from the context. That is not what he's saying. In fact, law and grace have always coexisted anyway. He gives two very graphic illustrations that extend the thought of fasting to a full doctrinal comprehension. Look at verse 16. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Now in those days, the garments were usually linen, cotton, or wool, and all of them would shrink. If you had an old robe and you got a hole in it and you took a brand new piece of cloth, and made a patch and sewed it over the hole in that robe, then as soon as you wash that robe, the new cloth would shrink and the old fibers would be ripped by the strength of the new cloth. So all you would get would be a bigger hole. You can't put a new patch on an old robe. If you're going to patch an old robe, you've got to use an old piece of material. What Jesus is saying is this. There's no way that what I teach can fit into your system. No one. There's no way that the message I'm giving of an internal holiness, of true repentance, of a heart attitude of worship can ever fit into the ritualistic system that you hold. Not only won't it connect, but secondly, your system can't contain it. That's verse 17. Nor do people put new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine skins burst and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, what they used to do to store wine was that when they slaughtered an animal, usually a goat, they would skin off the hide, shave off as much of the hair as possible, then dry and tan the hide using pine and oak tree resins. It was then cut into the proper shape and then turned inside out so that what little hair was left was on the inside. And that allowed the pine resin to attach to the interior and properly seal the wineskin. Then they poured another resin made from pine and juniper trees on the outside to seal it. And they massaged it into the skin so that it became completely permeated and thus watertight. And they inserted a hollow mouthpiece into the only opening, poured in the wine, and inserted a cork stopper into the mouthpiece. Now, if every time that a wine skin was emptied, you immediately poured in more wine, everything would be okay so long as you put in wine that was already fully fermented and you didn't fill <clears throat> you didn't fill the wine skin completely. Uh, that's because as time went by, the wine skin became harder and less flexible and would develop cracks in the leather. So then when you made a new batch of wine, it wasn't always completely fermented and thus you would never pour the new wine into an old wine skin because the fermentation process inside that old wine skin would expand it too much and it would burst. So you had to put new wine into new wine skins. And what Jesus was saying is, look, your system won't hold this truth. You have to jettison your old system. 
There's no connection. The pharisaical, traditional, legalistic, formal, self-righteous externalism that characterized Judaism was unable to mesh with the ministry of Christ, nor was that system able to contain the ministry of Christ. You know what the result of it was? The system has only one option. It had to eliminate Christ. That's all. That's the only option they had. And so they did. It was useless to try to put the two together. This is a very important point that Jesus is making. He didn't come to make a few additions to Judaism. The forms of Judaism couldn't contain the message he brought. Now that is not to say that the Old Testament is disconnected. Oh no. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Their religion was not the religion of the Old Testament. It was a rabbinic tradition that denied the very truth of the Old Testament as he made abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus said, look, your system says you're righteous. Mine says you're vile and sinful. There's no way to match those two together. If you hang on to yours, that's it. I truly believe that when someone comes to Christ, they have to say goodbye to a ritualistic system. Now, I'm not denying that there are probably some people in ritualistic systems like the Roman Catholic Church who have come to genuine faith in Christ. But if it's genuine, I think that eventually they're going to come out of that ritualistic system to the freedom of Christ, to the expression of an inward relationship. Now, as we wrap up this passage, I want to pull it together because I think we have to put this, we have in this text three marks of a true believer. Three marks of a true believer. First, a true believer follows the Lord. A true believer follows the Lord. Verse 9, Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, and he got up and followed him. It is characteristic of a true believer that he lives a life of unquestioning obedience to Jesus Christ. Did Matthew say anything? No, he just got up. I think about Peter in John 21. Jesus has just told Peter how he's going to die, and then he says, follow me. And Peter looks at John and says to Jesus, well, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, that's none of your business, Peter. If I decide he lives till I return, what's that to you? You follow me. And from then on, he didn't ask any more questions. Folks, the true Christian life is a life of unquestioning obedience. When I see people who profess to be believers, but they're always living lives characterized by disobedience to the clear truths of Scripture, I'm not convinced they're true believers. That's one reason why in the process of church discipline, Jesus says, if you put someone out of the church, you're to treat them as an unbeliever. At that point, you have no reason to believe that they're just a Christian living in sin. Their refusal to repent of sin betrays their true nature. If they're a true believer, at that point, you will see the evidence of God's discipline in their life. But if there's no discipline from the Lord, that's, that's evident in their life. You have no reason to believe that they're a Christian, regardless of what they might claim. A true Christian follows the Lord. Second, I believe a true Christian cares for the lost. A true Christian cares for the lost. Matthew couldn't wait to call all of his sinner friends together and have them meet Jesus. Look at your life. Does the Spirit of God dwell in, your, in you? If he does, the same compassion for the lost that existed in the heart of Christ will exist in you. Oh, it may get cluttered and covered up by your own sinfulness from time to time, but it's got to be there. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. So he, and he goes on to say, Therefore we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He also says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, there has to be that compassion. That's why Jesus condemned the Pharisees, because they had no compassion. He says, you've got the sacrifice, you just don't have the mercy. A true believer follows the Lord and cares for the lost. Number three, 
A true believer forsakes legalism and ritualism. A true believer forsakes legalism and ritualism. He fasts only as an expression of genuine spiritual concern, and he doesn't try to attach his new life in Christ to his old ritual or religion or try to somehow fit it into his old patterns. He sees there's no connection between the two. He knows, as Galatians 3.3 tells us, that having begun by the Spirit, you can't be perfected by the flesh or some kind of legalism or ritualism. He understands that, as Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The genuine righteousness of a forgiven, cleansed heart cannot be enhanced or supplemented by external religious works. Freedom in Christ has no part in the bondage of legalism. So as we conclude this passage, we see in it that Matthew presents four different images of Christ that should increase our love for him. He says Jesus is a physician for the sick. He's a seeker of the lost. He's a lover of mercy and compassion. And he's a bridegroom whose presence requires celebration. And since we are his children, we are to emulate our Lord and seek the lost and show them mercy and compassion. And that brings us to the end of this passage. Now, I've been up here talking all this time. Let me pause, <clears throat> relax my throat a little bit, and ask you if you have any questions or comments at this point. Yes, Mark. Apostate? What, when Judaism became apostate? Yes. It was. It's when all the rabbinic traditions became more. That would be during the intertestamental years. But even then, go back to the Old Testament. Look how many times they were following the Baals and all the other. So it goes way back. Man always corrupts what God puts in that's right. A physician for the sick, a seeker of the lost, a lover of mercy and compassion, and a bridegroom whose presence requires celebration. Thank you. Yes. Judaism never. I guess you have to define Judaism because Judaism from the Old Testament is not apostate. No. It's what man has done to it. Right. That makes it apostate. But Judaism, pure Judaism from the Old Testament. It's good. Yes. It's not apostate. No. But it's where he's asking, when did it become apostate? And it, and it never has become apostate. What people have done is they've twisted it, and what they've twisted has become apostate. Yeah. But Judaism, I, I think what it is, I have to make a distinction because some people can take that and go on and lead and say, well, the Old Testament then is apostate. No. I'm saying, no, it depends on how you define Judaism. Because Judaism, as defined in the Old Testament, is not apostate. Right, right. I think we have to be very clear. I, I just, I guess they were apostates, but not Judaism as presented in the Old Testament. Right, because I want to protect the Old Testament. Yeah. Right. Yes. I think there's some comparison between the Catholicism and the rituals and what have you compared to what people were raised in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when they went to church like you said, took their Bibles, went to church, and then maybe the preacher said, oh, well, read your daily bread. And they were believing what, what they were being taught, so they believed that they were doing the right thing. It's, so my question is, do you think those people that were raised in that particular time frame, like 50s, 60s, and 70s, Who's responsible for, uh, is it the teaching that they received or did the people just not respond like they're supposed to? Everybody is responsible for what they believe and do individually. Uh, yeah, everybody's responsible for themselves in that. Um, do you see the comparison I'm trying to make? Not really. Well, I think that, as I said, there's a lot of Protestantism that with its do this, do that, do this other thing, 
and you're good with God mentality that is, it may not have the rituals, but it, it's what I refer to sometimes as, as uh, Protestant legalism. They, you know, if I do this, if I, I don't wear my hair a certain way, what is the old saying? I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Uh, you know, the, the, and they think that if they do, 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 don't, 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 that that makes them, they're okay with God. They're wrong. In response to that, Ezekiel 34, if you read Ezekiel 34, God condemns the, uh, the shepherds. I mean, he just slams the shepherds big time because they misled his people. Yeah. And so he just condemns them. Right. But you continue reading, he said he will come and he will save his people and bring them back. Right. But the shepherds will be condemned. The point being is, if those people were misled by those shepherds back in the system, said those shepherds will be They will judged. pay. They will be judged. Yeah. But God, would, if they're chosen, God will still deliver those that have been mistaken. Right. If they're chosen, God will deliver them. Absolutely right. So Frank expresses it so much better than I do. <laughs> and also, people were also made to believe that whatever came out of the priest's mouth was equal to God's words. Yes, yes. Uh, if he said it, then that's what it is. How, how many, is there anybody in here that came out of a Catholic background? Besides Frank, others, Yeah. Uh, that's it's such a ritualistic system, and and uh, yeah, I remember I had uh, an aunt and cousins who were Catholics when I was a kid, and and uh, they knew nothing about the Bible. They ne had never memorized a verse in their life. But it was whatever they, it, but they knew the rosary. <laughs> they could recite the rosary, but they couldn't recite a Bible verse. If you want to listen and see something really fascinating. I stumbled on it on YouTube. It's John MacArthur talking about the heresy of the past. Yeah. Two parts. How the, the priest has to bow 12 times to the congregation, 14 times to the altar. He has to do all these certain things a certain amount of times and then, you know, present, you know, uh, do this ceremony. It's all about, you know, the arrogance of calling Christ out of heaven and sacrificing him to God. Mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, our time has passed. We need to go. Frank, would you close us with prayer?